Well, my friends, here we are. Another episode of the Robcast. <laughs> this is episode 216, Jesus H. Christ. Or as I prefer to say it, Jesus H. Christ, part seven. You are already at the party. Uh, and actually that title can be read lots of different ways. Um, it's a fairly fluid title. You are already, you're already at the party. Uh, it's like a declarative, right? You, you are already at the party. Or it's like, you're already at the party. Come on. <laughs> um, now I'm doing, working through these Jesus H. Christ episodes and... I'm always looking for order, you know what I mean? Like album sequencing, the songs and the way that they're ordered affect how you hear them. Um, and so I'm always looking for what part comes after what part next. And so sort of the week of, I pick the one that seems to flow from the one before or the one, uh, which is also a much more interesting question, the one that is doing something to me most pressing and compelling that week, or in this case, this week. And I was in Nashville uh, last week for tour, and I do this pre-show Q&A, and a guy said, you appear to be happier than you used to be. Um, isn't that an interesting question, by the way? Um, and that's true. Uh, I, I am much happier. And I was like, well, yeah, I am. And I was thinking about it. I mean, there's lots of reasons um, but then an, a friend of mine came into town to stay with us for a day, and he, right away, he showed up, came right from the airport, um, we're sitting there in the kitchen talking, and he says, dude, and I haven't seen him in years, he said, your laugh on the Robcast, he says, I love it, he says, it's like, he just, and it's, it's like joy, it's like you're... Yeah, and he went, did this whole thing about how much I laugh. And even telling you that, I start laughing. And I think I began this episode by laughing because there's something about sitting here all alone with the microphone hitting record that's just funny to me. But yeah, yeah, we laugh more. And I've always sort of, uh, I think I've been laughing for a long time, but more than ever. Um, and I realized that there is something about the Jesus H. Christ message that has been working on me more profoundly, uh, more acutely um, than ever at some level. It's almost like, because see, I started out as a pastor, so I literally went to seminary and studied all this. It's like you can read it and talk about it and study it, but some things take years uh, to sink in. Uh, and in some ways, as you grow through these different stages, um, as you sort of expand and, and enliven and awaken, you then begin understanding things that you understood one way at an earlier level. You come back to the same thing, but now it means something much bigger and more interesting. So this episode is in some ways a classic example of, of seeds, or a couple episodes ago, hammers versus smells. Um, something that's like gotten planted, and then it just keeps growing. And it might in some ways be the most significant change um, that I have noticed. Man, am I hyping this episode or what? 
I'm even, I'm even like, what am I about to say? Where is this guy going with this? Um, so this episode, and all I say, I'll say all that to say, this episode is hard, is hard to articulate. Um, so I'm going to show you a series of three stories that Jesus H. Christ tells in the Gospel of Luke. Um, but it's, it's the stories, but it's the thing below the stories that unites the stories that um, when it starts to kick in, it, uh, yeah, I can turn everything upside down for you. So and there's this uh, chapter, Luke chapter 15, and it says, uh, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. <laughs> That's great. That's what religious people do. They mutter. They gathered around and they muttered, mutterers. And then they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So their charge is that Jesus welcomes these people and then he eats with them, which doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But as, of course, we've seen again and again and again, if you read these stories in their uh, original context, eating was a political act because these people um, had been conquered by the Romans. There was an occupying military force walking the streets of their cities and towns. And so among these oppressed people who had been invaded by this global military superpower, among Jesus' people were all these theories as to why this happened. And one of the groups that was very outspoken said, these people who have come and done this to us, these Romans, they read it as God's judgment. Something horrible happened to us. This is God judging us. And their specific explanation was, we've been conquered and we have these foreign uh, troops. We have this army that has invaded us and is essentially soldiers are, are walking up and down our streets because we have people in our midst who are sinners. They're unclean. They are ritually uh, impure. And so if we could just get rid of these people, then we wouldn't have God's judgment on us. So for them, the reason why they had a, were experiencing such brutal, violent, and political oppression is because there were people in their midst who were, uh, because of their sins, because of their behavior, because of their lax morality, they have, were cl unclean and ritually unpure, and they're the one. They're the ones who have brought this judgment on us. Once again, we're talking about two thousand years ago, but nevertheless, they're the problem. This group of people were called Pharisees. So when you dined with people, what you were saying, it's called table fellowship, is dining was a political act because you were saying something about your beliefs, about this occupation, about who's clean and unclean, who's in and out, who's impure, who's pure, who belongs, who doesn't. And so you have Jesus, when it says he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, this is a blatant public act. It's like political theater. He's essentially saying, they're not the problem. And you can see, of course, why this particular group who were called Pharisees would have a problem with this, because this, this was a, as heated 
a political and volatile a political issue as you could find. And it says he was welcoming them. Now, in the ancient uh, Mediterranean basin, when you hosted a meal, otherwise when you welcomed people to a meal, one of the first things you would do as the host is you would lavish all sorts of praise upon your guests. You would pay them compliments. You would talk about how wonderful they are. You would shower them with all sorts of praise. And the guest would say, oh, no, no, seriously, no, but do go on. But no, you don't have to get, but seriously, I do like hearing this. So that was all part of uh, first century sort of protocol when you hosted somebody. So for Jesus <laughs> to have a meal and to be showering goodness and compliments on people that these religious leaders thought were the cause of this national oppression and misery, you can see why they would do a bit of muttering. Now, uh, Jesus knows that they're doing this muttering, and so he says to these religious leaders, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Okay, this is really funny because the Pharisees valued ritual purity above everything else. For them, staying clean, staying pure, not committing sins, that was the most important thing. That's essentially how you lived the best kind of life. And sheep and being a shepherd was considered an unclean task. So the last thing these people ever would have done would have been taking care of sheep. And so they're upset, they're muttering, they're offended, they're angry. Jesus knows this, and he says to them, in order to sort of get things rolling, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. <laughs> yeah, see, this is all the stuff that gets missed in these stories. This is really funny. It's really subversive. He's being really uh, surreal and offensive, essentially. Um, now, he says, if one of you had a hundred sheep and you lose one of them, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? First off, if you had a hundred sheep, no one person would have a hundred sheep. So, uh, in that time, in that place, if there were a hundred sheep, it's because a number of households took all of their sheep and put them together into one flock and then hired somebody to do it for you. So a family, one household might have had 15 sheep, but a hundred sheep meant that this was some sort of larger group of households that had all come together and essentially had hired somebody to look after the sheep, probably several shepherds. And so it's less that you own the sheep and more that you're responsible for all of these sheep. The shepherd probably doesn't own the sheep. The shepherd's probably a, um, hired to look after all of the sheep that have come together from all these different households. Now, why is that interesting? Because what would happen if one sheep were to wander off is one of the shepherds would go try to find it, and then the other shepherds would take the 99 and get them back home to safety quickly. Now, Jesus continues the story, and when he finds it, when the shepherd goes out and finds a lost sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. By the way, that carrying the sheep home would have been tiring. That, that would have been arduous. That would have been a burden. So there is the finding of the lost sheep, but that is just the beginning. Then there is the hard work 
of bringing the lost sheep back, which the shepherd apparently gladly does. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep. Now, why over one sheep would he call everybody together? Because probably a whole group of households own these sheep, and if you're losing one, that's a dent in the shared economy. And so everybody would have reason to celebrate that one had been found. It was like a communal celebration, everybody together, because everybody had shared interest and ownership in the hundred sheep. And he says uh, that the shepherd would say, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you, Jesus says, that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Well, there's an odd story right out of the gate. These religious leaders are deeply offended that Jesus is practicing essentially guerrilla theater here. He is doing open table fellowship with the people who they believe are the exact reasons why there's been murder in the streets. I mean, there, uh, there's evidence like the city of Magdala that the Romans crucified 2,000 people at once. So there is brutal violence in the streets by this oppressive invading army. And these people have very set views on why this has happened and who is the cause of it. And Jesus says, these people who you think are the cause of it, these are my people. They're fine. In fact, I shower them with compliments and hospitality. And then at the height of their offense, he says, suppose one of you has sheep. (laughs) It's just stacking the weirdness on top of the weirdness here. And then he tells a story about celebration, about something that's lost and it's found. And the sheep, by the way, does nothing to get itself found. It's all about the shepherd who goes out, finds the sheep, and then does the work of bringing it back. He then, uh, which by the way, raises this interesting question the story, he doesn't tell you if the 99 make it back safely. So a single shepherd would go out searching. That would be very dangerous because you've got wild animals. You've got all sorts of uh, like natural topography that could have been dangerous. Um, So the community is rejoicing that the shepherd's back. The community is rejoicing that the shepherd brought that one sheep back. But what Jesus leaves out is whether or not the 99 ever make it back. Then he follows this story up with a story about a coin, or suppose a woman has silver 10 coins and loses ones. By the way, the or suppose a woman is basically like, I'm on a roll here now. Here's a, how about this one? You like the sheep one? Check out this coin one. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. By the way, a silver coin at that time would have been about a day's wages. But remember, these are peasants who wouldn't have had currency in their homes. So this would have been a rare occurrence. So to have coins in your home, because it was mostly a barter economy, you would trade things. I'll make your shoes, you, I get some of your goat's milk, uh, he'll get you some wine. Like it was much more of a barter economy. You didn't really have a lot of coins and cash on hand. So having coins would have been unusual and it would have had symbolic value beyond simply the worth of the coin, which would have been about a day's wages. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. 
I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Side note, the coin doesn't do anything to get found. So he keeps saying that the sheep and the coin, uh, this is in the similar way, this is like when somebody repents. But the image that you're given is of a sheep and a coin that don't do anything other than allow themselves to be found. The, the, well, we'll get to this in a second. Now, he's on a roll. He then tells a third story. Jesus continued, there's a man who had two sons. Younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the, inha- give me my share of the estate. Which, by the way, would have been a thousand times more offensive than saying to Pharisees, which one of you if you have sheep? Because to say uh, the father's inheritance was divided when the father died. So to say to a father, give me my share of the inheritance, was to say, Dad, I wish you were dead. You are dead to me. All I care about is you being dead and me having your money. And then it says, so the father divided the property among them, which, by the way, would have meant the older brother who got the share of most of the inheritance would have had his inheritance shrunk because of what the younger brother requests. And an older father would never grant this. So this is a very, very odd story. Not only that the son would be that incredibly disrespectful in a culture that paid ultimate respect to the patriarch who ran the household, but that the father would then grant the request, which essentially means the older brother gets the shaft. His inheritance just went way down. It's, once again, it's so odd and strange and shocking and offensive and scandalous. The younger brother takes his inheritance, goes off to a, fo- a faraway land, who knows, maybe it's the Decapolis, and comes back, and uh, re- he ends up miserable, and realizes that his father's servants are better off than him. So he decides to go home, and he starts practicing his rehearsal speech. He starts rehearsing the speech he's going to give the dad. I'll set out. I'll go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Key line. Actually, life-changing line. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So this is the story that the son is telling himself. I am no longer worthy to be your son. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. Okay, first century Mediterranean patriarchs would not run. This was the height of indignity. The patriarch, the father who ran the place, was dignity, decorum, power, gravitas. The last thing a father would do is run. And the last, last thing a father would do is run toward a son who had brought that kind of shame on the family. And this is a shame and honor society. The worst thing you could do is bring shame on your family. And the son's story is, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the son says, uh, the father says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, which were all marks of being a son. These are very odd 
stories. It's like they get under your skin. So you have to approach them as alternative wisdom. You have to approach them as truth that's coming in the side door because they're loaded with these strange, surreal details. Now, the Pharisees' issues are about worthiness and unworthiness, clean and unclean, measuring up or not measuring up, good enough or not good enough. And they have very strict ideas. Um, it's called the, the purity code about how people are to conduct themselves and very strong convictions about the punishments that you will incur upon yourselves and your people when you don't follow these very strict guidelines about personal conduct. So this is the framing of all of these stories. The Pharisees are muttering about this act, this political act of Jesus eating with these people. Jesus' response is stories about joy and celebration and the engines of the stories, the stories are driven by wandering off, getting lost, leaving home. And what keeps popping up in these stories is this gratuitous generosity, joy, and celebration about this coin, son, and sheep that were lost, but now they're found. Lots and lots of celebrating. Now, these are dark days. Uh, this uh, oppression, crucifixion, hunger, people were losing their family lands. Some people estimate that in the Galilee at this time, taxation rates were about 90%. So you had other people said life expectancy was about 40 years. Uh, so these are dark, ominous days. Um, you had had one violent um, uprising after another. Uh, and yet, the stories and the images that Jesus keeps drawing on are joy and celebration. They threw a party. They had a fattened calf, put a robe on him. This is actually a common theme in uh, the stories about Jesus. We had seen a couple episodes ago when Mary pours an excessive amount of perfume on his feet, uh, We'd seen that line, there's a, be a great banquet, they'll come from the east and west, a giant banquet with people coming from all ends of the earth. There's so much excess, there's so much welcoming and inviting, there's plenty for all. He feeds uh, 5,000 people somehow managed to eat, and there's still some left over, there's plenty. It's excess, it's generosity, it's welcoming, it's inviting, it's plenty, uh, they work. They show up at different times in the vineyard, and the people who show up at the last minute still get paid like they'd worked all day. It's over the top, more than expected. These are the images he comes through his stories again and again. Now, for some, the Jesus stories in some ways, or you just mentioned the word Jesus, and for them, the central image is like a courtroom trial. It's proving, proving that Jesus is whatever, Son of God, the only way, the best religion, the Messiah, whatever it is. For many people, the, the central images are like a courtroom trial where uh, a case is being made. For others, it's like a battle. They're in a battle. It's a culture war. It's a battle against evil. Uh, 
And so anytime you talk about the spiritual life, about growth, transformation, heightened consciousness, battle is the image that comes to mind. For others, uh, the dominant images are uh, maybe like a lifeboat. Like everybody's in trouble and you got to get in the lifeboat or you're going to drown or you're going to burn or you're going to get left behind. But in these stories, and they're all throughout the Jesus H. Christ stories, the images he keeps returning to are celebrating, joy, feasting, abundance, overflow, excess, too much, pouring over the top, laughing, dancing, really, really good wine, running, welcoming back, throwing a party, these are the images of all the ways Jesus H. Christ could talk about what he's up to. These are the images that keep returning. He keeps calling back. Now, let's go back to those first images of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. A couple observations. Number one, each, the sheep, the coin, the son, belonged the entire time. Each belonged to their owner, to the shepherd, to the woman, to the father. Each belonged the entire time. There was no amount of lostness that the sheep, the coin, or the son could find themselves in, in which they would lose their belonging. There's nothing the son could do that would make him not the son of the father. There's no amount of lostness that the coin could accumulate that still wasn't the woman's coin. And there's no place the sheep could wander that the sheep still didn't belong to the shepherd. So whether the sheep was lost or found, the coin lost or found, the son lost and found, their belonging, their belonging was never in question. Secondly, their foundness is not based on anything they do. The sheep doesn't like get a GPS and find its way home. The coin doesn't suddenly grow legs. The son is operating under the belief that he's no longer worthy to be called his father's son. All he does is stumble back. He hasn't even gotten his full sort of speech out. And the father is saying, bring me the ring, bring the sandals, bring the, let's, uh, this is my son. This is, you're my son. The father doesn't ha has zero interest in his I am unworthy speech. Doesn't even really get the full thing out before the father's like, what? What are you talking about? And when the older brother has a problem with the younger brother coming back, and he's basically like, didn't, didn't all my stain, all of my goodness sort of get me in with you? The father's like, wait, you've always been with me and everything I have is yours. Wait, you didn't, did you think that you were earning points by being good? So what's really odd about the stories is when Jesus tells the stories about these things being found, these things belonged the entire time and their getting found didn't have anything to do essentially with what they 
did. By the way, let's go back to this sheep because we don't know what happens to the 99. Do the 99 make it back safely? And we don't know what happens to the older brother because in the son who wanders off and comes home, in that story, the older brother has a serious problem with the father. He's like, really, this is what you do? That's what you do. You can wander away and squander the money and all that, and then you come home and you get a party. That's how it works, because I never even got a party, and I've been here the whole time being the good son. And the father's essentially like, wait, did you think that, that was like earning you points? Because the younger son, it's his badness that you think, ah, oh, he's separated from the father. And it's the older brother, it's his goodness that separates him from that. He thinks that all of his good stuff got him points. The father's like, you've both been my boys. Never, it's not like you could do anything to not be my boys. And it's not like you could do any good to be more my boys. You're just my boys. What am I, I going to do? Measure the infinite? Love is infinite. Love's not on a scale. Love just is. So when he tells the story about we don't know what happens to 99 and we don't know in the story what happens to the older brother, who is he telling the story to? He is telling the story to these Pharisees who are grumbling about who Jesus is dining with now, for them to see who he is dining with, they have to, at some level, be at the party. They are somehow present at the party, but they aren't at the party. Are you with me on this? And this is the subtle truth that runs through the whole thing. They're at the party, but they, they aren't participating in the party. They're at the party, but they're not feeling the love. They're at the party but they are in some strange way lost. And so Jesus tells a story about celebrating and feasting to people who are at some sort of party, these religious leaders, and yet they can't, they aren't choosing to enter in. It's like they're at the party. It's like they've been at the party the whole time, and yet they're not at the party. That's hell. That's hell. Hell is being at the party without being able to enjoy it. The older brother... Hell is not some far-off place in the story. Hell is the older brother who is at the party. They're singing and dancing and food and love, and the older brother is there, but he can't receive it and enjoy it. He's there, but not there. That's a hell on earth, to be there and not enter in, to not participate, to not enjoy, to be right there in the midst of all that love and goodness and peace and joy, but not be participating in it, that's a hell. Yeah, because you're already at the party. You already belong. Of course, you can f- always choose, you're free to choose some other version of the story. We can do that if we want. Uh, we, can, we can choose to tell a different story, that the universe has been unfair to us, that we got shafted, that we're not good enough, that we're a victim. You have the younger son rehearsing his vision, which is about how unworthy he is. We can cling to our version of our story in which we've decided that we are unworthy, that we aren't good enough. We can make list of our sins. We can carefully articulate all of our lostness. We can give colorful explanations of our shame and descriptions of our humiliation. We can do that. But these are our ideas, not his. That's a hell we create. Jesus H. Christ comes to rescue you 
from those kinds of hells of your own making and announce that you're already at the party. Yeah, we can choose to craft a tale of how we haven't gotten the breaks that other people did, that other people had it easier. Uh, we can create our own misery about what was that something was done to us by somebody and it's irreversible or that we aren't lucky or blessed or fortunate that uh, we weren't born to the right family. We can tell those stories if we want, but those are our stories. Jesus H. Christ comes to tell you a different story about you, story that you have been found, that you are at the party, and all that's left to do is celebrate your foundness. That is one awkward sentence, and I love it! <laughs> Yeah, all that's left to do is celebrate our foundness. Yeah. So these stories are about a love and desire that goes out and finds that which is lost. Yeah, before it ever has a chance to sort itself out. This is grace, and grace is absurd. It makes no sense. It eats dinner with whoever it wants to eat dinner with. And if there's some group that's like, whatever you do, do not eat dinner with them. Grace eats dinner with them. It plays by its own rules. Grace laughs in the face of conventional wisdom about how it all works. It loves to celebrate the absurdity and strangeness of it all because it doesn't keep score. It found that game boring a long time ago which makes all of our striving and straining and stretching and posturing and proving so absurd. Grace is absurd, and it makes all of our attempts to try and earn what we already have look as absurd as they actually are. You're already at the party. Jesus H. Christ doesn't come to tell you you're good enough because being good enough was never the point, because that was never the game grace is playing. God was never keeping score, so all the good points you racked up weren't getting you something else, and all the bad points were somehow not making you a son or a daughter. You've belonged the whole time. There's this great line uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, when you fast... Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. It's so great. Essentially, he's saying, um, by the way, hypocrite was a Greek drama term. They're actors. So he's saying about these very religious people, you know, when they fast, when they go without food and do their religious rituals, um, what they do is they let you know all of the good deeds they're doing. And he's like, they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. And he essentially says, do you think you get points for your goodness? Or do you think you get points for your sacrifice? Do you think you get your points for doing good religious deeds or paying the cost of whatever it is that you are doing, right? You've seen this, right? People are like, oh, it's just so hard. It's just so hard. I don't know why. I, I just keep going. I just keep basically asking people to say like, oh man, you're amazing. Like just begging for somebody to notice, right? Like, like, do we think that God is impressed? It's like Jesus H. Christ comes to announce, did you think that you were earning points on this? You get no points for this. Or I like this. Jesus comes to say, don't make that face. Don't make that face. Don't constantly tell everybody all of the difficult things that you're doing for the cause. Come on. 
Come on. Don't make that face. Don't. It's like all the ways we make sure everybody knows how hard we're working and how many points we're racking up. The coin didn't do a thing but get lost. The sheep didn't do a thing but wander off. That's the story. And yet they belonged the whole time. Uh, do we think that God is impressed? Like, well, I should let them into the party. Look how good they are. Look how much they've struggled and suffered for their noble cause. Look at all the, how generous they are. Wow. <laughs> Look how many podcasts they've recorded. Woo. <laughs> oh, man, if you're playing that game, you're never going to enjoy the party. And that was never how you got into the feast. You've been there the whole time. You've been there the whole time. Now, there's nothing wrong with fasting, obviously. Obviously, we're trying to get as many people, uh, all the people who don't have clean water, we're trying to get them clean water. We're trying to feed people. We're trying to get people housing. We're trying to stand up to injustice. We're trying to get out the vote. Like, yeah, of course we're doing all this. Nothing wrong with accomplishments and achievements and hard work and serving and helping and doing what you can. Once again, there's spirit and then there's form. There's nothing wrong with these forms. It's when that spirit that animates the form is rooted in the belief that this is somehow earning you something. It's doing those deeds because deep down you believe that you're unworthy. And if you do this good stuff, then somehow maybe you'll be considered worthy. The gospel is the absurd announcement. Grace is the truth that that was never the game that God was playing. It's the good news announcement of radical grace for everybody. We're all invited to give up all that thinking about points and goodness and worthiness because that was never the point. You have to die to the entire enterprise. Yeah, the idea that we're unworthy. We have to die to that idea. Yeah, that's why, by the way, it's always about a death and a resurrection. You have to die to scorekeeping. You have to die to racking up points. You have to die to somehow the idea that you took this path and they took this path. Therefore, somehow, one of you belongs more than the other. Uh, those aren't how the rules work anymore. Yeah. You see how deep this goes? That's why it's even weird to talk about because it's almost like there are these plate tectonics deep below the surface of our lives that when, this, when these start to line up in new ways, you see how profoundly this can shape the way you live your life and do your work and give your gift? Yeah, because then if you win or you lose, and sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. Sometimes people care about us. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they are indifferent to our efforts. Sometimes we receive all kinds of praise. Sometimes what we do is considered successful. Sometimes uh, it, it's considered a failure. Uh, doesn't mean that we don't feel all this. Doesn't mean it doesn't sting, it doesn't burn, doesn't fill us with joy. So you have to grieve, you have to rant, you have to let it out. You have to let the experiences of life be what they are. You worked really hard at this thing and it bombed. You did this and people loved it. This person uh, reciprocated and appreciated and were so thrilled with how you gave and this person over here just turned and walked away. Yeah, that's all part of it. But at the deepest level, levels of heart and soul and spirit. Uh, you're at the party. Yeah, you belong. Uh, the father, the mother, the divine parent just keeps welcoming you home, insisting that 
you have always been with me and everything I have is yours. Your worthiness or unworthiness, your goodness or lack of it were never how it worked. Yeah. I get to meet, of course, all sorts of fantastic people. Uh, and I'm often telling you about them, but I swear to you, I can smell, I can sense, I have radar for those striving, grasping energies. You know what I'm saying? I know them in myself and I can pick them up so quickly. Uh, I bet you know them in you. Uh, I bet you can feel them in you. It's like when, uh, when your worth is in question, when you don't know where you stand, when you have this gnawing question, am I good enough? Uh, you know that thing like when you're at a party and you're meeting people for the first time and all these subtle ways that you're making your case, that you have game, that you know what you're doing, that you're somebody, right? That you belong, that you're good enough, that you measure up, right? You know what I'm talking about? Because you're like me, you've gotten good at this. We've gotten, we've gotten good at beating ourselves up over our unworthiness. And we've gotten really good at just all those little subtle humble brags to let people know that we're somebody. Uh, you're at some event and it's slightly intimidating because there are all these beautiful people and smart people there and they have their stuff together and they all appear like people who wake up early and are incredibly disciplined. Uh, at least that's the perception, although we all know that everybody's got all their stuff. But that subtle thing creeps in when you're in one of those settings, right? Like, what am I doing here? I don't measure up. Oh my word. Look at what they're wearing. They just pull it off effortlessly. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? We, you with me on this? And that thing makes its way in, uh, that creeping sense of unworthiness. But yeah, gospel is the radical, upside-down, counterintuitive announcement. These stories Jesus are telling, Jesus is telling, he comes in his fullness to, to announce that you're at the party, and you've been at the party the entire time. Yeah. When you realize that you've been at the party the whole time, it's like your starting place shifts. Uh, if you're coming from that place that you're already there, there's nothing, then there's nothing to earn. There's nothing to prove. <laughs> yeah, you're free. You're free to just do the work and give the gift. Now you're dangerous because you might just actually be able to do some good. Now if you set up you set out to fix some things, to maybe help some people heal, to stand up to some injustice and oppression. Now you're dangerous because you're starting play. You're not doing that. Once again, spirit and form, you're not doing that to somehow earn points. You're doing that because you realize the whole thing has been a celebration the whole time. And if I can maybe help liberate others, oh, why wouldn't I do that? Yes. All right. Let's hit record. Let's do this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because see, there's nothing larger at stake. And the problem when this hasn't sunk in is our success, our failure, whether we're liked or not. It's like this whole thing is at stake. Are, are we good or not? Are, are, do we measure up or not? Are we worthy or unworthy? Like there's, there's this whole question of our worth that's constantly at stake. That's why the, that's why the cross has been just an extraordinary symbol for so many people of healing. That's also meant all sorts of other things, but uh, in best conditions, it's this profound integrating symbol of all that has died so that you can really live. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why at the heart of the Jesus H. Christ story, it's always about lostness and foundness. It's always about death and resurrection. You died to the idea that you ever had something to do with your foundness. So you no longer point-keeping, proving, arguing the case for how righteous or unrighteous or worthy or ethical or awake or enlightened or whatever it is you are, you died to all that. Yeah. We died to all that posturing and platform building. Good Lord. So now we can really live. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There are these deep spiritual energies that flow through these stories that Jesus H. Christ tells. Yeah. Think about this. If you're in a long-term relationship and this person that you're with wishes you were, wishes you were different, and they keep telling you all the ways they wish you were different. And they have lists of things that they wish you weren't how you are. Does that in any way motivate you? Do you find yourself like, oh my word, I feel, I'm so enthused and motivated to become a better person for them? No, no, it's just, it's like death. It's like death. But then when somebody loves you, exactly as you are. When they love you as if you're the person they long for you to become, that you're everything they ever wished you could be, when they love you like that, it does something to you. Suddenly, you have these renewed energies to become a better person for them, not out of guilt, not out of points keeping, not to prove that you're worthy, but because they've thrown out all of the point scorekeeping yeah, yeah, this is the thing about kids is to create the space where a kid knows they belong no matter what. None of your worthiness, inness, outness, lost and foundness, none of that is up for debate here. That's all been settled. Now, that's our starting point. You're here. You belong. Now, what are we going to do here? Let's do some stuff. You want to? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kristen always laughs and says that I'm unembarrassable, <laughs> which I think is my favorite word. When people say, what's your favorite word? I think my favorite word is unembarrassable. But when the part of you that was keeping score dies uh, or is dying, uh, I have a long way to go. Or how about this word, unoffendable? Or how about this word, unintimidatable? Yeah, yeah. When you realize it was never about how good you are, then the part of you that would have been embarrassed or offended or intimidated, that part died. <laughs> that part, the part of you that would have been crushed if that happened, it happened and you're fine because the part of you that would have cared stopped playing that game. So try this, my brothers and sisters. Try this mantra. I'm already at the party. <laughs> try this. I've been found all that's left to do is enjoy the celebration. Yeah, I'm already at the party. Try this. Repeat it. Yeah, and then what, what's interesting about it is what it does is it shows you how often you created, we created our own misery. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus puts the older brother at the party. He doesn't separate heaven and hell. He doesn't celebrate the agony and the ecstasy. He puts them there at the party. He doesn't banish the older brother. He has them at the party, observing the joy, but refusing to enter into it. And the father's basically like, 
Are you going to enter in or not? Which is the original premise of all three stories, is the Pharisees are there. They're in the presence of open, inclusive, radical table fellowship, countercultural, political guerrilla theater Jesus is doing with sinners and tax collectors. And they're all having a beautiful celebration, and these mutterers can join in if they want, but they refuse. Jesus puts their hell right in the midst of the heaven. Yeah, and what happens you go, I'm already at the party, you realize how often we're creating all of this. And so it's like you're learning how uh, to live in just such a different way. Try it, repeat it, write it down, put it up, write it out, and tack it up in your life. Say it again, put it on your dashboard, chant it, make it your mantra, breathe in, breathe out. And when those old insecurities return, when you find yourself in the presence of somebody who makes you feel less than, you know what I'm talking about, right? The beautiful people, the driven people, the organized people, the people who don't procrastinate, the people whose cars are always clean. You know what I'm talking about, right? People, there's those people who just make you feel like, I am such a slob. <laughs> I am such a slacker. Those people, I, I get around them and I'm like, oh my word, I don't even have cheekbones compared to that person, right? <laughs> when all that stuff comes in, you just stop and you go, wait, I'm already at the party. Yeah, I never was playing that game in the first place. Yeah, when you feel the scoreboard lighting up with all the points the opposition has scored. Look, how, look, look at where they get to vacation. Look at who they know. Ugh. And then you repeat it. But wait, I'm already at the party. Yeah. Since when did I think that was earning me anything? Oh, man. Was that an episode or a rant? But I hope you feel the love there. Because that was really, really fun to talk about. And if you find yourself thinking, what is this? What do you, t yeah, I know, it takes a while. It takes a while to like sink in and do its work. It's like a seed that gets planted. It's like yeast that has to work its way. But I'm telling you, this, this is the thing that turns everything upside down. This, you will, you will laugh when you start to see how absurd and beautiful it all is. And it's not to say that you aren't wide awake to the suffering and the pain and all the isms that are around us all the time. Yeah, that's real. But man, you, you, start to, you, you actually start to believe Jesus H. Christ. You, you believe there's a whole other way to see things. You start to trust. Uh, you start to line your life up this way. Man, now, now, you, now you might even get something done. Now you might even be able to help. <laughs> yeah, it like makes me emotional thinking about it. Yeah, so... Uh, and at some level, you uh, might find yourself laughing more, not because you're not paying attention, not because you're indifferent or you're ignorant, not because you don't care, but because you do, and because you realize what an extraordinary gift the whole thing is, and why wouldn't you want to share it with everybody around you? Yeah, why wouldn't you want to talk about it? Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go, my friends. That's grace. That is Jesus H. Christ, who never stops insisting that you are already at the party.